You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Lift Different Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wilson, and today we are talking about a topic very near and dear to my own heart, travel as transformation, here with author Gregory Deal. I'm really excited to talk to Gregory when I was doing some research on a project that I'm working on. Gregory came up as one of the top published authors in all of travel on Amazon. I have dove into his book this weekend. Uh, He's the founder of Identity Publications, an organization that produces and publishes meaningful books containing ideas that matter. He's traveled to over 50 different countries. And uh, he's just an all-around interesting, interesting young man and he has a podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations with Gregory. And hopefully today, Gregory, that we have a uh, more comfortable conversation. What do you say? Well, that's up to you. I can go either way. Well, I will I will do my best to make you comfortable, but maybe we can get into some uncomfortable topics. What do you think? Uh, I'll let you lead that and see what your audience would be interested in. You know them better than I do. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, well welcome. Thank you for for coming uh, coming on the podcast. I see that you, some of your books are translated into Spanish. Uh, you have been traveling since you were 18 years old, and you said that we are communicating right now, and you are in Armenia. Is that correct? Yes. Armenia has sort of inadvertently become one of my favorite countries. I've been coming here annually for about the last four years which originally began because my grandmother was Armenian and I was interested in researching the family history. I'd already been to about 45 other countries at this point, but for some reason I'd never been to my well, one of my ancestral homes. And also at the same time I was discovering that Armenia is one of a handful of countries in the world that has an active citizenship by descent program. So if I could prove that my grandmother was Armenian and that I was descended from her, I could get a passport here. So all that sort of came together into a neat little bundle. I ended up getting the citizenship here. And I actually really liked it here too. So now I tend to come back here about once a year as a little writing retreat in the mountains of a town called Dilijan. Damn, that that sounds pretty cool. And uh, I believe in your book or somewhere online, I read uh, that you are really into this concept of uh, finding – uh, finding out, for example, if you are of Irish descent uh, or Italian descent, I know that you're able to uh, go ahead and find uh, who your ancestors are and be able to get yourself a passport. So I want to definitely ask you about that. But first, I want di- I'd love if you could take us back to uh, right around your 18th birthday or your graduation upon uh, uh, from uh school when you decided that you did not want to go the normal route and you wanted to uh, go out and travel the world? Well, it wasn't about travel at all for me at first. I didn't grow up thinking that was the kind of person I was going to be. Like, certainly I wasn't opposed to it. Uh, I I hadn't left the country before. I'd barely left California, barely left San Diego. It was about new experiences and breaking out of my comfort zone. And I was already doing that in every way that I could before travel became a viable option for me. I had moved into a van. I was sleeping in a Ford Econoline, very large vehicle, for almost a year because that was 
simply the most direct way I could find in my immaturity, in my youth, to find greater freedom in my life, right? To challenge myself in a new way. And I had a great time doing that. And then suddenly I had get this opportunity to go visit a friend in Costa Rica who'd gone down there about a year before. And I honestly, I didn't even know this guy very well. It's not like he was one of my best friends. And I didn't know anything about Costa Rica. I didn't even know where it was that I mapped and speak Spanish or anything like that. But suddenly here is life presenting me with this new way to expand my freedom and push past my limitations in the same way that moving into a van had done to me previously. So uh, being reckless and impulsive and, and very, very curious and ambitious, I just said, sure, why not? What's the worst that can happen? I go down there, I end up loving it. It's a great time. I spend almost a year down there. And as soon as I come back to California, expecting life to get better with this new enhanced perspective that I have of having spent time in this new place with new rules of life where I can experiment being a new person, I actually got really depressed, suddenly having to conform back to the constraints of my old home. And the rest is just an ever-increasing obsession with always looking for new places to go and new ways to expand my concept of self. Travel is just the best way I've found to do that. That's that's awesome. And I want to talk to you, of course, about some of the extremely off-the-beaten-path places uh, that you have traveled to, like Iraq. Uh, and also, uh, I head back to Costa Rica in six days, where I live most of the year. So I'm pretty excited. Where did you, where'd you spend time down in Costa Rica? I I saw pretty much the whole country, and I've been back there a few times since then. You know, that first time, I couldn't really view it in a very impartial manner because I was a tourist, you know, seeing this new world for the very first time. So, of course, my opinion was very biased, even though I did spend a significant amount of time out there. It's only after I've spent enough time in places outside of Latin America and I've seen all the different ways that all these different cultures and climates and geography affect me that now I can go back to a place like Costa Rica and have a little bit more of a neutral perspective. But I, I think I started out in Atenas, which is about 45 minutes outside of San Jose. And then from there, I went up to uh, Arenal, Sure, sure. Yeah, I know both. I know both of the areas. Uh, Gregory, what is it about Costa Rica that just seems to awaken something in in so many people? Well, I think at least for me, it was probably the f- perfect starting destination for this journey that I was on because it was so comfortable, right? There's a very large expat presence there. So even though Spanish is obviously the primary language, there's enough English that you can function if you have to, if you don't speak Spanish. I did end up learning a fair amount of Spanish during the time that I spent there and and the many other uh, times that I've spent in other parts of Latin America. Since then, I speak pretty good conversational Spanish now. But I think for me, a lot of it was, again, that very welcoming mixture of both local and foreign population and the biology really the ecosystem more than anything because compared to the deserts and the beach of california the tropical jungles of costa rica are just teeming with life and that kind of thing just blew my mind like not that i didn't know what a tropical jungle was conceptually but living in that humidity surrounded by these impossible tropical plants and animals all the time and seeing how people almost lived completely immersed with nature in some places that was probably the biggest eye-opener for me, really just cementing this idea in my mind that there are so many other ways to live and so many little variables that you can't even conceive of or control that you know the way you arbitrarily happen to grow up and learn to live in the first place that you're born is, is 
pretty pretty limiting, right? And so why just stick to that one thing and not explore all the other ways that you can live your life? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I got to the point where I have to, when I'm in Costa Rica, I have to sleep with my, my door open or obviously I have a screen or else I'd probably get eaten alive by mosquitoes every night. But I have to have that sound of the jungle in the background and, uh, you know, it's kind of like a white noise. But if I close that sliding glass door, I'm like, oh, man, I, uh, I don't have that comfort of the creatures outside of the tree frogs and the crickets and the cicadas and, and uh, all the jungle noises. And I told a friend about that from New York and they're like, oh yeah, it's kind of like when I lived on uh, Second Avenue and I needed the taxis blaring their horns outside to to fall asleep every night. And I was like, uh, that's not exactly what I meant, but I guess it's a fair comparison. And what's amazing is, you know, we can sit here and, and commiserate over how amazing we both think the tropical environment of Costa Rica and similar places are. And we obviously share that evaluation. Yet there's no reason everybody has to, right? The world is so big that it offers every possible combination of lifestyle variables that you can imagine. So if you like the sound of traffic going by out your window, if you like big cities or small towns or mountains or valleys or rivers or beaches or whatever it is, whatever your thing is that makes you comfortable, that exists somewhere on this planet if you're just willing to go find it. You know, not everyone has to live this Costa Rican semi-retired lifestyle or whatever it is we might be promoting because we like it. Sure. And you go into that in your book and you talk about how, yeah, you get all these travel bloggers and uh, they just want to show their laptop on a beach. And everybody knows that's actually a terrible idea is to bring your laptop to the beach. Nobody would ever do that, but they're just trying to push their perspective. So my question for you, Gregory, is how do you, how have you developed this uh, very objective view of the world, or at least one in which you seem to consider both sides of the coins or, or many different variables when you're when you're looking at something, as you just did in, in my previous statements. Well, it's impossible to be completely objective, of course, no matter how experienced you are or whatever your values are. You're always limited in your knowledge of how things work. You're always biased in your preferences, either consciously or unconsciously. But what you can do is try to hold as much relevant perspective at any given time that you can. And I don't travel nearly as rapidly now as I did when I was in my early 20s, say. I'm 29 now. And typically now I'll spend about three months in one city or one country before moving on. I'm finding that's, a that's at least for now, a pretty good amount of time where I can be stable and comfortable in a place. And then I start to get a little bit bored and want to go somewhere else. Yet even now when I move on to an another place, I find myself revisiting many of the same places. Whereas when I was younger, it was much more about just seeing as many new places as I possibly could, even if it was just for a few days. So obviously my mentality is changing a bit. Maybe that's a maturity thing, or I'm just getting old and boring. I don't know. But I find it's necessary, even though I'm not as impelled to just throw myself into unconventional or uncomfortable experiences, like when I went to Iraq, which you mentioned, or China, which was probably the worst six months of my life for reasons I could go into. But e even though I now try to stick more to known environments, like I keep coming back to places like Armenia, I've been building a house in the Valley of Ecuador for a few years that I go back to about once a year as well. I'd like to get back to the Philippines soon because that's my favorite part of Asia. So I, I have these habits and these 
these routines now that I've almost developed, which sounds weird to say because we're talking about a lifestyle that is supposed to be outside of routine and habit. But by changing things enough, whereas, you know, when I'm in South America, I can remember what it's like to go to the mountains of Eastern Europe. And when I'm in Eastern Europe, I can remember what it's like to go to the tropical islands of Southeast Asia. And keeping this fluid lifestyle always in my background awareness of whatever is going on in front of me, I know that there are things that are so different than whatever it is I'm dealing with. And that keeps me appreciative and humble for everything that I have, because I know things can always be different. They can always be better. They can always be worse. You can always go to a richer country where the standard of living is much higher, and you can always go to a much poorer country where people can barely afford to eat. And having that perspective ingrained into you through enough repeated exposure affects every new thing you ever do, even if you're not actively returning to these places, just as I'm no longer actively seeking to live in in totally impoverished places, even though for a while like, that was a big interest of mine to have that kind of experience. I don't feel like I need to constantly be doing that so much anymore. Sure. And, and Gregory, what is it about human nature that people need to feel this routine or people need some type of external comfort even though as you just described you're trying to live a life where you're constantly outside of your comfort zone but you like going back to those familiar places every once in a while or it might seem uh, strange for someone listening to this to say oh well he's this traveler nomadic guy who goes all over the world and doesn't have a home yet he's building himself a home in ecuador uh, what is it about the familiar that people that humans really love so much well we kind of need it to function right to accumulate anything we need some level of stability every it's, it's sort of this a yin and yang order and chaos kind of thing. You need a balance of both where you need things to be predictable enough that you're not constantly having to solve problems and adjust for unexpected occurrences, but also random enough that things don't grow stale and that they stop evolving and changing. And most people are too far on either one end or the other of that spectrum, right? So the impulsive teenager who doesn't take life very seriously and just parties all the time is on the far end of chaos, right? He just wants everything to be changing and exciting all the time. Whereas the really boring, uh, let's say the parent of that same teenager who just wants him to focus on his, his studies and not go out and not party, not do anything interesting or dangerous is too far in the stability, the order side of things. And when you adopt travel as a lifestyle and you have the freedom to introduce exactly as much change and chaos or stability and order into your life as you want simply by buying a plane ticket and going to another part of the world where you know variables will be different, you, you're like setting the tone and the rhythm of your life depending on what is most appropriate for where you are in your personal evolution. So as I've described, I've gone further and further away from the chaotic side of things where I'm always seeking newness and change and I'm introducing more and more stability into my life. I don't know the end result of that. I don't know if I'll ever want to be in one place full time. It seems really unlikely for someone like me that I would ever live one place full time because I always like novelty and change to some degree. But at the same time, I'm developing bigger, more serious, longer term goals as I approach my 30s, right? I have a big focus on writing books now because I've had some success with that. And I'm finding that's taking up an enormous amount of my time. 
I'm not interested in casual romantic relationships anymore, right? I want to build something long-term and ongoing with the right kind of person. And that necessitates a certain kind of lifestyle and a certain kind of mentality. So I can't be telling anyone else that this is how they should be living their life, just as the digital nomads who love their parties and their excitement and their chaos and their selfies with laptops on a Thai beach want to tell everyone else, hey, come live the exciting life like I do. I'm saying, no, figure out what that is for you. And I can't tell you what that is. I can't even tell you that travel is the best way for you to figure that out. I'm just saying it's one very potentially valuable tool to figure out who you are and the limits of your experience and your personality. And I think probably everyone can benefit from at least a little bit of travel in their life, not necessarily full time like people like you and I do. But if it's not travel, go figure out what it is, that thing that helps you figure out who you are and what is most appropriate for where you are in your life and therefore your identity. Okay, so so take us back to this concept of personal evolution and how someone who is hungry to evolve because they're stuck or maybe they're not stuck, but they just want to take their personal evolution to the next level. I understand that you're not telling them you have to, they have to be like you or I, uh, but what it, how can they go about just engaging with that or, or awakening that interest in themselves and then coming up with a plan to be able and to, to start, uh, not to be too cliche, but discovering more about themselves and, and evolving. Well, a lot of it is just fear from walking away from what is known, you know, from what is familiar. Even if we're miserable with what we know, we, we don't want to give it up because it sort of defines us after a while. Familiar pains, familiar frustrations and stresses that we have to deal with on a daily basis. You know, that's that's the average American life in my and probably, you know, more than just the average American life. And most people in most countries are defined by a set of repeated and familiar stresses and problems that they have to encounter to the point where they don't actually want solutions to these problems. They just want a, a manageable way of confronting these problems every single day of their life because that's what forms their lifestyle. And so you need to be not afraid to walk away from those things when you see them recurring in your life even if you don't know what you're walking to when you walk away from those things. That's probably the single most important part of being a successful traveler is the willingness to walk into something where you don't know what is going to happen and trusting that you'll be able to figure it out with a minimal amount of preparation and basic self-reliance, right? I, I don't speak any other languages except English and Spanish now, yet I can go probably to almost any country in the world at this point and within hours have made contacts with people and figured out the layout of where I am and the best places to stay. And, you know, it, it's just become like an unconscious skill at this point that people don't develop if they're not put into situations where they have to. And when you keep living the same routine day in, day out, you develop only a very limited set of skills. And if enough time passes with you doing that, you again become afraid to walk away from that. I'm sure every traveler knows people who've been saying to them for years, I'd love to get on a plane and come visit you sometime and I can get a break from work or, or I'd love to try to do what you're doing or, you know, and then there's always an endless list of excuses of why they can't. Usually it's money, right? Which of course is not a very good excuse because there are very cheap ways to travel if you're creative. 
or, or it's time or it's family obligations or it's if it's not one thing, it's always something else. And that's the whole point is that we, we come up with elaborate excuses to justify the way our lives are. And we are afraid to walk away from what we know because we don't know what will replace it. So that's certainly, in my opinion, the most important part getting over that fear and replacing it with some kind of enthusiasm or curiosity and ambition. Okay, so Gregory, on the topic of adaptability, sure, you can, gro- you can drop Gregory Deal anywhere in the world and he's going to be okay. He's going to be able to figure it out, problem solve, etc. So could you connect the dots for people on how this is transferable to or or, uh, direct these skills are directly transferable to real life because I know you're not just practicing to travel more and okay drop me in China and I'll figure it out or then drop me in Africa and I'll figure it out Uh, how are these how, how can you relate this to real life skills that people need well, what the heck is a real life skill? That's that's the worst label I've ever heard for anything. What is real life and what is fake life? Clarify that for me. Well, okay. Uh, so, you have real you have what most people would consider a life of a quote unquote digital nomad. Even though I'm not a big fan of that term, people say, "All right, you just." traveling around to be able to travel around. So, so what skills are you uh, growing within yourself? What skills are you practicing rather than just, ju- are you just getting better at traveling and figuring out uh, how to survive in this city and then going to the next city and getting better at that? Or is this, uh, are these skills relatable in the workplace or relatable in relationships? How is uh, your ability to travel supporting your personal evolution? Okay, so there's there's the optimal part there. My personal evolution, or in other words, the things I actually care about, my passions, my values. Right. That's that's what matters. You're not. Will this help me in a conventional career path, or will this make my parents proud of me? Right. Unless that's your value or your passion. That's that's why I take issue with things like, you know, the real world or real life skills, because usually when people say something like that in a very demeaning way, they're saying you should value what I value. You should live your life the way I do, because it's the way most of the people around me do it. And if most people are doing it and it's how I learn to do it, it must be the right way to do it. And all other opinions are invalid. So I would say, how does how do the skills and experiences that a person has traveling apply to what they care about, right? Which may be making a lot of money, maybe falling in love and having children, maybe art, maybe you just want to paint or make music all day. I don't know. That's that's not for me to decide. So the first thing is you have to know what you want. You have to know what you care about, which, you know, is sort of solved the same way. By having enough experiences and introspecting enough and, and comparing your experiences, you start to notice patterns in who you are and what makes you sustainably happy not on the superficial way, but like in that deep, meaningful sort of way. <coughs> Excuse me. So I've I've listed a few of my own. Like, why am I putting so much attention now into things like building a house in the beautiful Valley of Ecuador or, or writing so many books now? Why is that important to me besides the financial aspect where I can make money as an author? Well, certainly that's important to me. Financial comfort makes my life easier. But rather, I'm super passionate about communicating 
unconventional ideas, meaningful ideas, ideas that make people think in ways they didn't before, like hopefully my book Traveler's Transformation does for most of the people who read it. If, if I can get some people to think differently about their sense of identity and using travel in a more meaningful way, then my book has done its job and that makes me feel fulfilled, right? So if you're asking me that question, how do the skills of travel apply to my passions? Well, like in a million different ways. I've had to become an exceptional communicator and problem solver as a result of living an international lifestyle with people of dozens of different cultures. Like that's, I'm, I'm probably in the top 0.01% of people in certain skill sets as a result of that because I have to live beyond the confines of, of how most people structure their social lives. Like I can't even explain it to most people who have only ever lived in one country their entire life, how I can how I can maintain contacts all over the world, people who have their own ideas of who they are and what their cultural identity is and how I can work with them in a professional capacity here or have a relationship with them romantically here or just stay close friends here and not lose touch over years and and thousands of miles of separation. Like that's that's mind boggling how a person in the modern world can do that in the same way that using something like Facebook might blow the mind of your grandmother who only ever knew 12 people in her entire life. You get what I'm saying? It's, it's an exponential growth of how we structure what is considered a fulfilling human life. So I, again, I can't tell you what skills you will learn or whoever's listening to this will learn if they decide to travel because the way two people travel isn't and shouldn't be identical. And what you learn also shouldn't be identical because you should be pursuing your values and your passions while you do that. So if going to Costa Rica for a year when you're 18 is the way to do that, at least right now, then go ahead and do that and see what you learn from that. And if instead it's going to Iraq to teach English and seeing a completely different side of humanity and therefore yourself is the way to do that, then go do that. And I'm not even necessarily describing two different people because I'm describing things that I did at different points in my life depending on what I needed at that time. Just as what I need right now is to sit alone in the mountains of Armenia and focus on writing and have conversations with people like you about travel. And next year, I'll probably need something a little bit different. And that's okay. So how can someone think to themselves what do I need right now? What type of adventure or not adventure, maybe a very boring trip, because you do mention that in your book that it's not always, it doesn't have to be about adventure. How do you decide where to go? Do you throw darts at the, the map? Uh, do you say, ah, oh, this looks good. Let me just jump into it. How do you identify what trip is going to be right for? How can the listener develop what trip is going to be right for them well with any kind of new endeavor i think the sweet spot is where you're exactly one step beyond whatever your comfortable limit is right so and those comfortable limits come in many different varieties it could be the language barrier it could be not knowing people it could be uh, if you go to a certain place you'll face, face racial discrimination or something like that like everybody's situation is different and everybody's comfort comforts are different so I would say, you know, start with what you know, like if you know a little bit about, like if you grew up in California, like me, for example, you probably know a little bit about Mexico because you're so gosh darn close to the border there, right? So you're probably at least a little bit familiar with the influences of Mexican culture. That probably wouldn't be a bad starting place. Go spend some time in Mexico. Why not? You're, you're barely even stepping away from your little home pond there. Yet 
with that action, you are introducing new variables, new concepts to your mind. When you suddenly see everybody's dressed differently, everyone's a different skin color, they're speaking a different language, the, the food they eat is completely different. And that, that too kind of shocked me because for a while I was just driving back and forth between San Diego and Rosarito, just below the Mexican border. And that's only like a 45 minute drive. Yet as soon as you cross that border, it's like you're in a completely different world that most people are completely ignorant of, at least in San Diego. So something like that is a very good first step because it's easy. It's not too uncomfortable. It doesn't require a huge sacrifice from you. And then from there, you say, okay, well, now I know what Mexico's like. Well, what's the next hardest thing from there? Maybe some other part of Latin America. Maybe I'll make my way further south down to Nicaragua or Costa Rica. Costa Rica, like I said, too, was a good one because it was different, but also similar enough that it didn't blow my mind and, and destroy my sense of comfort completely because there are gringos there, because a lot of people speak English, because in general, they're super friendly people, because the cost of living is low. And if I'd gone further and further south, like I eventually made my way down to Ecuador, which is still Latin America, but it's like the further south you go, the more the culture starts to change and you have to adapt in bigger and bigger ways. And then when I got bored of Latin America, I started going to Asia, right? I went to China, which was a completely different world. Again, I'd already been to many parts of Central and South America by the time I went to China, yet I was still shocked by how different it was. And it's not like it's not like people don't know about China in America. It's not like I'd never heard of it and never seen the architecture or, you know, been influenced by the culture in some way, seen Jackie Chan movies. But being there, living there, when I already considered myself like a pretty experienced and versatile traveler at that point and just seeing how hard it was for me to adjust to the way they taught their kids in schools and how crowded the streets were in their mega cities and, and things like that, like things that you don't really think to put into words because they've never been an issue in your life. You need to find a logical progression of increasing strangeness, right? Because if you jump too many steps ahead in the process, you could blow a circuit and have to take some time to recover, which I did, unfortunately, several times, like working yourself too hard at the gym and pulling a muscle. Yet, if you don't go far enough, then you're just repeating the same things you already know, and you're not actually growing whatsoever. Just like if I'd never left Costa Rica, for example, just because I loved it so much that first trip, eventually I'd grow way too comfortable with Costa Rica, and I'd stop growing. Uh, Gregory, can you tell us some of the times where you might have pulled a mental muscle and uh, everything, uh, maybe you pushed it a little bit too hard? Yeah, okay. So China is the most obvious one for me, just because I, it was really antithetical to the values I had recently discovered. So that's another important thing, too. We've been talking about this in a positive light so far. Like, once you know what your values are and what you're actually passionate about, you can start building your life around these things in service to these things. But then the opposite is also potentially true, that you you can lose these things or have these things actively attacked or have them challenged in some way, right? Like, if I learn that I care about child rearing and, and education and enlightening minds and invoking, stoking curiosity in people, right? And I learned that that's a genuine passion of mine, which I did through various forms of education. I worked at for a while. And then I'm forced to witness things and carry out a sustained existence where those things are actively challenged, where like I'm working in a school system in China where kids are made into little dogmatic slaves, where they just learn things through rote memorization for 12 to 16 hours a day and are discouraged from any form of free thinking whatsoever and are blindly obedient to their parents and their government, suddenly I'm under, you know, psychological attack, 
where or you could see spiritual attack where everything that I think I am and now that I think makes sense for my identity and my life is being suppressed in some way. And at the time, I didn't have the means to get away from China. And I spent six months in what I considered basically my own personal hell of having to question and challenge everything that I had in the years prior to that found to be true about myself and that made me feel more alive than anything before. So I think to completely know yourself, I think you need both ends of the spectrum. I think you need to have these wonderful, amazing moments where you feel more alive than anything because finally your life is making sense and you're living in line with who you really are. And then you need the complete opposite, that dark night of the soul where you feel like nothing will ever possibly work out for you again and the whole world has gone to shit and it's utterly hopeless. And, and life is an oscillation somewhere between those two points. And we're always trying to put it more in the positive category and build our lives in a way where we are in line with who we are and what we want. Yet we cannot control everything. And there's always the possibility we'll be confronted by the opposite of what we think is true. And the people who run things like digital nomad blogs tend to really hype up the positive side of things. Like travel is so amazing. Well, yeah, if you're going to the most popular tourist beach in the world, I'm sure it is amazing. I'm sure everything is peachy keen there and you're just drinking your coconuts on the beach and living on $300 a month and nothing could possibly go wrong in your life. But you're ignoring 99% of the rest of reality of possible other experiences you could be having. So where do you set the limit for yourself? Where do you say, okay, this is where I'm comfortable. This is where I'm going to stop. Or are you going to keep pushing that and saying, well... I know what it's like to be comfortable now. I know what it's like to feel like everything is working out for me. What's the opposite like? Only a certain kind of person, I think, actively pursues that. Absolutely. And I know people who have come to a place like Costa Rica and they think it's absolute paradise and things get really dark for them. In fact, there is a, a kind of famous uh, gringo crackhead in our town where you know it's just a, a kid who came and partied too much and now he's uh, addicted to crack and he'll never leave and lives up in a little place they call La Montanita, which is just the little place for people to go and, and do drugs uh, and are mainly homeless and, and sleep up there. So yeah, pretty it can be pretty pretty scary out there as well. Uh, and Gregory, I'm curious if you have developed any tools for yourself uh, to be able to deal with when you have those dark times, when you are abroad and you can't just say, all right, screw it. I'm done with this. What I need to do is go back to Costa Rica or I need to go back to San Diego. How do you, do you have any, anything that you do to, uh, to try to cope with the hard times? I've probably tried everything you could possibly imagine to cope with the dark times. And you know, what? what is a dark time? What is an existential crisis? That moment of panic and desperation where you feel like the whole universe is suddenly falling apart. That's your brain struggling to respond to changes that it, it did not know could happen, right? Where every premise in your worldview, in your paradigm is suddenly thrown upside down and your brain just has no structure anymore. Your entire map of reality is thrown out the window. And it's normal for us to panic in that state and like try to hold on to our structure. Like, no, 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 this is how the world works. I know this, right? Just like, uh, you know, when, when you first are told that the earth is round instead of flat, or, you know, not us, but people hundreds of years ago when they were told that, it was probably a really difficult thing to believe if your entire paradigm of the world is based on conceiving it as a big flat plane instead of a big spherical plane, even though 
a change like that doesn't actually have much practical effect in our day-to-day -day lives. Like if I believe the earth is flat, I'm still going to eat the same and, and have, have friends the same and, and make love the same and go to work the same, right? That's not probably not going to affect most of the daily aspects of my life. But on this ideological level, the way I perceive the whole of the cosmos suddenly changes. My system of the world changes dramatically if I believe that the world is flat or round. And if I cannot rebuild a structure when a fundamental, a foundational premise has been challenged, then I cannot function at all. And that's really what an existential crisis of any kind is. And I haven't just had them from viewing you know, like problematic parts of, of the cultures of the world, like what China did to me or certain parts of Iraq or certain parts of Ghana, you know, that just challenged me in different ways as I learned more about human society and the way human beings live. But on the personal level too, like, uh, you know, having to, to lose the loves of my life under various circumstances, breakups or, or, or deaths or whatever the case may be, like each of these has the poss possibility depending on our value system to throw us back into the state of panic and desperation. And the only thing I found consistently that makes sense is to learn to ignore that part of you that insists on panicking when that happens. And the more often that it happens that you get thrown into this state of disrepair where everything's up in the air and you have no idea what's going on anymore, is to just do nothing. Do as little as you possibly can because you don't have a functioning map of reality anymore. Simplify your life to such a state where, you know, and hopefully you have the freedom of lifestyle to do this where, you know, I, I don't have a work schedule so I can structure my life the way I want. But if you can set up your life in such a way where your only concerns are, you know, feeding yourself and sleeping eight hours a day, then it's a lot easier to, in a very short amount of time, restructure your paradigm to accommodate what you have recently learned about reality to be true that would have contradicted what you previously thought to be true. Whether that's getting over a breakup or having to deal with a new part of the world or worrying you're gonna run out of money or your parents just died or whatever the thing is that just totally messes up your brain. Do as little as possible and give your brain the space it needs to adjust to the new circumstances of reality. And if that means meditating or, or doing yoga or, or, you know, there are all kinds of coping mechanisms and spiritual practices that people do that may or may not help them. But I think it really comes down to doing as little as possible and not letting your mind wander and go crazy. Sure. It sounds like what most people do during the grieving process. If somebody passes away, well, you pretty much just sit with it, it, it seems. And uh, yeah, you shut down for a little bit. So Gregory, I wanted to, to ask you about reverse culture shock and it's so many different places in your book and i've experienced it myself and i've seen people come to costa rica for as little as five days and I, we're just using costa rica because we have that hit in common but somewhere very similar to north america they come there and they go back and their perception of reality or what life was is completely changed and they get back and they really struggle. So could you could you talk to us a little bit more about reverse culture shock and and your uh, how you've had to deal with that being such an avid traveler? Well, it's like the cycle of the hero's journey. It's like after you've gone after, on this big transformative journey, 
where you've you've seen the world and you've changed as a person and nothing will ever be the same again because you've overcome all these trials and challenges, then, you know, mythologically, archetypically, the hero goes back to where he started, except his perspective is completely different now and he's no longer this naive creature he was when he began before he accepted the call to adventure and, and slew the dragon and slayed the dragon and so forth. And we, that's, there's a reason that's an archetype, right? Because it, it accurately reflects how we grow and change as human beings on both the micro level and the macro level. And travel, again, it's not, this isn't limited to just travel. It's, it's how we cognize the world. Travel is just a very useful illustration of how this happens. Because when you go, and again, whether you, you live in Costa Rica for a year like I did, and so your entire lifestyle adjusts where you no longer feel like you're a tourist anymore, and now suddenly this is your life living in Costa Rica, or you just go for a week. And in that week, you get enough of a perspective enhancement that you can't go back to pretending things are the way you were pretending them to be before. Like, if, if you suddenly learn that there is a different way to live in the world and that maybe you like that way more, or maybe it was a negative experience, like if... If you go live, if you go to one of the most impoverished parts of Africa for a week, and then you try to go back to your comfortable Californian existence, it's not like you're sitting there saying, oh man, I really want to go back to Africa. Why am I stuck back here in stupid, boring California? Instead, it's like, how can I go back to living this mundane Californian existence, knowing what I now know exists and how people are living on this planet, suffering or crying or whatever the case may be, positive or negative, your perspective has been changed and you cannot view familiar things through the same lens anymore. And we call that reverse culture shock. And I certainly suffered from it when I first went back to San Diego. And again, I was still really young. I was 19, 20 then. So I was still a kid who didn't know what I was doing. And I was still trying to make sense out of my life. I just, I knew I just had this huge expanding experience where I became much more aware of myself and I was in a really good mood prior to that. But now suddenly I'm having to, I'm thrown back into the negative end of the spectrum again, where I'm having to question everything I thought that I had just realized about myself because I'm, because I'm thrown back into this very small worldview where I, I know the names of the streets and I know the neighborhoods where I grew up and I knew all the friends that I made growing up and I know the way my parents treat me and see me. And everybody's trying to put me back into a box where they know exactly how to treat me, except they can't see the parts of me that have just been expanded and discovered over the last year that I was living in the jungle of Costa Rica. So who am I and what's real? anyway right so that's its own form of existential crisis and either you slowly readjust back to your limited worldview like you, you accept defeat and you say okay well i guess i'll just go back to the way things were before and try to forget what i learned hopefully that doesn't happen to you but it does happen to a lot of people or you have enough curiosity and determination and ambition to say no i have to keep pushing this and Sometimes it's not feasible that you can just get on another plane to another country because maybe you've got a job and you've got commitments and you don't have enough funds or whatever the case may be. Again, I'm not telling people to completely disregard the practicalities of life. I know it may come across that way. I'm saying, though, that if you are determined enough in the modern world, especially with the Internet and entrepreneurship, you can find a way to wean yourself away from whatever limitations you have in life so that if you are feeling that existential crisis of i can't go back to living a normal life or i'm so miserable here and i want to go out and see the world if you are determined enough there is no valid excuse barring some i don't know a terminal illness or something or a death in the family that you cannot find a way around 
the modern inconveniences of life. If you come from a first world country, you have no idea how freaking blessed you are and how many conveniences and tools and and possibilities you have in your life just by having access to modern technology and utilities and education. And if you don't travel, you probably don't appreciate that fact. And if you did, then you'd start to realize that there are ways around the self-imposed limitations of your life. So whatever your problem is, you can find a way out of that. And I hope that if you experience that reverse culture shock where you suddenly realize you are miserable back in your comfortable limitations of home, you do something about that instead of just conceding defeat. That is, uh, that, that's really awesome advice there, Gregory. And I, I want to dive in a little bit more there and talk to, and ask you about the people that you deal with. So you have to go back and have that conversation with your mom. And as you said, she can't see the parts of you that have changed because you've changed and she hasn't. Everything still seems the same. And the people, your friends are having the same boring conversation at the same bar and it's totally predictable and there's no stimulation there. But talk to me about the uh, challenges that you've had with people who just don't understand anymore and then where do you go from there well where can you go if someone i mean there's no way to say this without sounding like a condescending asshole right uh, I, i'm not trying to demean people who don't travel right or who live conventional lifestyles it's just that after a certain amount of time has passed it becomes really hard for you to even interact because your worldviews are so different and the things you're thinking about are so different and even the way you use words are so different and, you know, that's that's just the natural flow of life. You either feel like you are obligated to restrain your own growth and development and expansion for the sake of other people's comfort and convenience, or you say, you know, no, I love you and respect you and appreciate the influence you've had in my life, but my development is more important to me. And if I have to, if, if keeping you in my life is going to force me to sacrifice my development, that's not a sacrifice I can make. Again, two different kinds of people. And if you're the kind of person who's even thinking about these things and feels really, really impelled to get away from the restrictions of your social life or your work life or whatever, you're probably one of the people like, like you and me who's more concerned with pursuing truth and pursuing development, even at the cost of social convenience. Because I believe that when you find those relationships, whether they be friendly or romantic or professional or whatever, that survive the process of rapid self-expansion and an unwavering dedication to whatever happens to be true, those are the ones that you want to hold on to. Those are the sustainable relationships. Those are the people who become your family, your tribe, you know, and even if those people are smaller in number, you know, again, I've been living this life for over a decade now, and there are few, you know, a handful of people that I really feel like I want to keep in touch with for the rest of my life, even if we don't see each other for years. Those people are worth a hundred times as much as than all, all the dozens of shallow connections I had back home or or the people who are just your friends out of convenience because you both like going to bars or you have something, you like playing video games together. Again, not to knock these things. I love video games. I love recreation in its many forms. But I'm saying there's a difference between the kind of relationship that you feel like you can build your identity and your life around because it is sustainable and it is based in truth and the kind of relationship that is there and it's convenient and you take advantage of it because it's mutually beneficial 
special for a time, and then you move on with your life. Well, yeah, you were describing a uh, a huge challenge uh, in my life after over the last six years, and it was harder at first because I felt that I changed so quickly, uh, and that nobody, yeah, that that nobody could really relate to that. And I say that as humbly as possible, but then I really fought internally uh, as I started practicing mindfulness as to not judge the other people around me, but I didn't want to look down on them and feel bad for them because they didn't have the same experiences. I really wanted to just try to let that go, but that was, you know, I found myself hanging on to some of those relationships. Uh, And so, Gregor, I want to ask you, A, do you feel lonely out there on the road? And B, how did you go about and have you made new friends? Well, I think everybody does and should feel lonely from time to time. I think it's a necessary human emotion, just like grieving in any, any form of negative emotion. And definitely earlier in my journey, having to accept that I was losing many of what I considered to be my closest friends at the time was, was a super difficult realization for me, right? But at the same time, it wasn't so much, oh, I'm losing this person. It was more like having to accept the fact that maybe I was never really that close to this person to begin with. Like maybe, maybe I was just a character in their personal narrative. I was just a convenient source of entertainment or companionship for them. And as soon as I stopped being that thing to them, suddenly they don't want to talk to me anymore. You know? So am I sad because I don't have this person in my life anymore? Or I'm sad because I'm waking up to the illusions I held about what this person was in my life. And the harsh truth is difficult to deal with but in the end it is necessary to deal with the truth however harsh it may be and if i can accept that truth that many of the relationships if not most of the relationships that i consider to be valuable were actually superficial what does it mean to have a non-superficial relationship what is a real close relationship a true friend a family member a lover what does that actually look like have i ever had one of those in my entire life and you know, that gives you the incentive to go pursue those things and to become the kind of person who can even have those things. Or I give the example in Travel is Transformation, I talk about my mother because we went through an interesting relationship shift where I I kind of hated her for the first 18 years of my life, you know, or at least since I was about 10 years old because I resented her for, as probably many bright rebellious young people do for being the imposer of limitations and arbitrary rules in my life, right? You know, everybody knows this story. How cliche can you get? And I I probably could have gone the rest of my life never having a meaningful conversation with her again as soon as I left the house. Yet because of my experiences abroad in Costa Rica, I felt like I changed so much as a person. I developed new perspectives and new appreciations. I came back to California willing to get off to a fresh start with both my parents and and kind of you know just say you know you just don't treat me like your son anymore forget about that little boy that you raised and the rebellious teenager i was let's just talk to each other like adults as we are here now like i was mature enough even at 19 and 20 to approach both my parents with that attitude because i felt like i matured so much as a result of going abroad and it was then that i found out that my father had been cheating on my mother for like a year and was leaving her for another woman so there you go there's your existential crisis moment but what made that so impactful was that it threw my mother into a state of existential crisis this woman who i considered 
you know, simple-minded and and not somebody I would ever be able to really talk to like a human being in my entire life. But because she was now suddenly in a point of darkness and desperation at the same time that I was going through my reverse culture shock of coming back to California and finding out that my father had betrayed my mother, we were very successful in eliminating many, if, you know, certainly not all, but most of the false associations that we held for each other over the last 18 years of life, where I saw her as this this stupid authoritarian figure in my life. And she saw me as her rebellious son who needed limits and rules and to take his life seriously. We, because of our existential crises, where our entire paradigms were thrown up in the air, we didn't know what was real anymore. We could forget most of those things. It was kind of amazing how quickly things got better between us because we were we had a psychological reset where we could look at each other like strangers and say, okay, this is who you are. This is who I am. What are we going to do about that, right? What makes sense for us to do with that? If the past didn't matter, what would we do from this point forward? And it is very rare to be able to do that with somebody that you've known a long time because usually you just have way too many phony associations and baggage from the past. And I've had similar issues with girls I've dated for a few years where we had good moments, but then a lot of problems that would accumulate over the years. And even if I felt like I got to a point where I could say, you know, let's forget about the mistakes we've made with each other and focus on the fact that we do love each other and we can have a productive future together. But then from my perspective, usually it's the girl who can't reach that same point and can't let go of the past and can't move forward productively because she's too trapped by her own negative memories, right? And so I think that's a really rare thing for two people who have known each other for a long time to be willing to forget the past and just focus on what is true right now and move forward. And so in a weird way, I'm glad that my father cheated on my mother and sent her to her most painful moments in life and that I was there to witness that because that is the only reason I have a real relationship with my mother today. Wow, Gregory. Well, we really appreciate the vulnerability and and you sharing that story. Uh, and it, it got me thinking just about the relationships that I had in the past, uh, not even romantic ones, but ones that were just part of that phase of the life and uh, of my life. And maybe were just based in convenience and uh, that they were just an illusion to me to to be general. And maybe I wasn't as close as to those people who didn't really care to or make an effort to keep in touch that's uh yeah that that's really interesting stuff to to ponder and i'm sure as i as i think about this episode a little bit more and this will give give the listener especially uh as well something to to really think about and to and to contemplate and gregory before we start to wrap up i also wanted to ask you something uh, that you are, are very well versed in. And this is the concept of having multiple passports and using uh, residency or citizenship uh, to your advantage so that you can live, uh, you, can, you can have the right to be where you want and interact with the governments uh, in which you choose to when being more of a, citizen of the world, um, if you will. So I'm curious if you could just introduce our listeners to this topic. I know it's it's obviously a huge topic, uh, but it's something that you have written quite a lot about. So I, I was hoping that you could give people a, a primer in this concept in just a, a few minutes here. Yeah, well, it's 
it's kind of an absurd thing if you think about it, the way countries work in our world and, and how many restrictions on movement and general freedoms are arbitrarily imposed depending on where we were born and therefore what nation has a claim of ownership over us, right, which we call citizenship or residency, that the way the world treats you depends probably more than any other factor on what arbitrary little square of the planet you happen to have been born on. It's kind of insane. And as an American, of course, uh, I'm subject to many privileges that most other countries in the world find very enviable, and also some uh, burdens that come with being American, too. There are some liabilities, too, such as is our insane tax situation, which I don't won't go into here. Although I did help produce a book specifically about that called U.S. Taxes for Worldly Americans that I suggest any digital nomad from America check out. And to me, to access the maximum amount of freedom, you need to diversify where you are allowed to base your identity. And on the most fundamental level, politically, that means being a citizen of more than one country. It really comes down to that because being a citizen gives you the freedom to live in a place it gives you permission to travel to whatever nations that country is on good terms with because every country has different rules of how long they're allowed to stay in other countries or how easy it is to get a visa there or work there. Again, as an American, you know, your passport gets you into about 170 countries without a visa, which is pretty darn good compared to, uh, you know, developing nations where you get maybe 50 or 60 visa-free countries. And they're mostly just to other developing nations that you probably wouldn't want to go to very often anyway. Like if you have are from a country with a passport that gets you visa-free access to Europe's Schengen zone, that's a very enviable position to be in. Like just in the last couple of years, both Ukraine and the Republic of Georgia were given visa-free access to the Schengen zone. So they can go to Spain, Germany, and France now for up to 90 days as tourists. And that's like a huge milestone in their development as countries like it was a it was a big deal for the citizens of these countries to now be able on the same playing field as the united states in regards to a, a citizen of ukraine can now spend as much time in spain or germany or france or italy as an american can like that's that is huge boost boost to their national identity so i i kind of became obsessed with with not just developing my identity on the internal psychological level but also how the world views me politically as an entity, as a citizen, right? And so I've been collecting passports and residencies and setting up companies and bank accounts, partially because there are practical benefits to doing it, like accessing my money or being able to travel to certain places. And a lot of it just on that psychological, spiritual level of not seeing myself as confined to just being a member of one country, especially a country as potentially controversial and problematic as the United States of America. So I currently hold three passports. One of them I already told you about was Armenia, which I got through descent. I also did get the Republic of Georgia, which is right above Armenia. And I'm working on Peru next, which might take a couple of years. I could potentially do Ecuador because I own property there, but there are there are different restrictions with each country with what it takes to become a resident or citizen there. So if you're just doing it to sort of collect these things, you can you can find a way to game the system, like find out what countries you only have to spend a few months out of the year in or put a small amount of money into a bank account to maintain your residency, which eventually makes you eligible for citizenship. 
For people who have a lot of money, there are some countries that offer citizenship by investment programs, like certain islands in the Caribbean. If you pay six figures, you can buy a passport there, essentially, and some of them are pretty decent passports. Or if you're a descendant of Ireland or Italy or I don't, there are a few more. I can't remember. I used to have a list of them, but there are, there are probably less than 10 countries that have active citizenship by descent programs going back one or two or three generations. So if you can find the appropriate birth certificates, then you can just show up and say, hey, please make me Armenian or please make me Italian. And they'll say, OK. Excellent, Gregory. Well, uh, maybe at a future date, we'll have to have you come on and, and uh, school our, our listeners about that. Can you tell us real quick about your new book that you're working on? Working on a few of them. Uh, the biggest one would be one about how to write and self-publish a meaningful book because that has become a huge source of my professional life now, my professional identity as an author who writes about things like identity development, branding, travel, personal transformation. Uh, but and professionally too, I make you know pretty decent money in passive income just from book sales. But more than that, now people take me seriously as somebody who writes about these things, and that's probably been the biggest benefit of all. So now I'm writing a book, teaching other people about how to write a book, not just in the cheapest, most convenient way possible, but a book that you know kind of changes the world, like really deep ideas that would be really difficult to express in any medium except a book, and then have that book be commercially successful on the market. Awesome. Well, uh, Gregory, if people want to reach out to you, keep in touch, follow you on social media, listen to your podcast, uh, let them know where they can find all that good information. Well, add me on Facebook if you want to talk. That's pretty good. Gregory Deal. Deal is spelled D-I-E-H-L. Read my books if you like the way I'm talking because they're you know sort of condensed versions of the many messages that I have to espouse. If you want to learn more about publishing and possibly getting your own book out there that changes the world, go to identitypublications.com and you can listen to my podcast, which is, you know, nicely called Uncomfortable Conversations with Gregory. Excellent. Well, we'll try to link up all those resources on under30experiences.com slash blog and in the show notes on iTunes. Get this over on YouTube as well. Uh, Gregory, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks. Listeners, if you have been a listener for a while, you probably know my own personal story, my hero's journey, if you will, about quitting my life in New York, living on Wall Street, being stressed out, not taking care of myself, and going on an epic quest to Iceland that completely changed the course of my life. And you've probably heard about our travel company for young people ages 21 to 35, under 30 experiences. Now, this is not a commercial for under 30 experiences. However, I want to share with you the magic of what travel has done for me. You guys have heard me talk about this on different podcasts, speaking all over the world about this and sharing what I learned about myself and about the world with other people, uh, but mainly focused inwardly when I traveled to be able to gain experiences, to be able to you know, really just experience new things that gave me a completely different perspective and propelled me to start taking care of myself mentally, 
physically and spiritually, something that I really had never considered before. So if you are interested on going on your own epic quest, I would love to get to know you better this fall in Bali, Indonesia, September 30th on our yoga and mindfulness retreats. If you have never practiced yoga in your entire life, if you don't know what mindfulness is whatsoever, I really don't care. I think you should come anyway and come to the rice paddies of a, a magical place in Indonesia, Villa Awang Awang, where we're going to give you a real cultural experience with our partners there on the ground, seeing what it's actually life, like to, to be part of a community uh, there in the Balinese village where we're going to stay. Yes, we're going to practice yoga, eat as healthy as we can, get to know one another, and just have an amazing experience and see what comes out of it. So if you want to be part of this, I suggest you check out under30sexperiences.com and click the link to the yoga retreat on Bali if you have heard the previous podcast with Luz Garcia, our amazing yoga teacher. She's going to be there. She has over 1,500 hours of yoga teacher training. And I'd really love the opportunity to get to know you, to get to hear your story and uh, share a week with you in someplace amazing. So if you, want to if you want to commit to changing your life for the better, come join us this fall in Bali. <laughs>